All right, everybody, if you'll slowly make your way back, I would appreciate it. That's pretty quick. You guys have improved since last week. Um, so good morning, happy Memorial Day to everyone. At first, at 10 o'clock, there was like 20 of us here, and I'm like, man, the entire church is on vacation. Everybody left, um, which is true. There's a lot of our people that are gone traveling, um, but still a lot of us that are here and people that are visiting, so we're just happy to be here with all of us that are present in the room. Um, so I don't want to take it personally, which is good, even though nobody's on these first couple of rows close by, so I'm just going to scooch up a little bit, but um, it is good to be together with you guys. It is my third week in a row of preaching to you, which I'm thankful for, and we are at the tail end of chapter four, um, so we've just kind of done a, a quick flyby through chapter four for these three weeks, but it's been good, and I hope that you've enjoyed it, um, and depending on your perspective, of course, since each week is on the topic of suffering, we've suffered our way through the whole chapter together, and if you are still here today, then you, you've withstood the test, and you're still in the room, I'm thankful for that. So by way of just a very quick overview for the last couple of weeks of chapter four, in case you missed it, um, our first six week, our first six verses of chapter four, two weeks ago, um, we talked about mindset of suffering and having the mindset of Christ, and just kind of having that joyful, like for the joy that was set before us, just like the joy is set before Christ, um, in terms of the way that you look at suffering, and then also just the understanding. Um, of essentially our conduct, right? As we started getting into that second week, those next few verses of 7 through 11, uh, we looked at, okay, well, what are we supposed to do as Christians? If we, if we suffer, and then what do we do um, within the church body in the midst of all that? And the focus is on loving one another through using gifts and through the way that we interact with each other and hospitality and all those sort of things. Those are just practical ways in which you see the church love one another. Um, so here we are in these last few verses of chapter 4, and we are still on the topic of suffering together. Um, but it's going to look a little bit differently. And essentially, um, what Peter is doing for us is, once again, he's reminding us, like, hey, suffering is a reality. That's just, that's a part of life, and we'll get into that. Um, but we, we, we're looking at today, like, well, why is it necessary? And why would God allow those things for us as believers? Um, and what are we to do with that information as we begin to kind of process it and, and put it into place in our lives? So my goal for today for us is to break the passage into three basic sections. So if you're a note taker, you could do it that way. I didn't put notes in there for you. It's just a bunch of blank lines in your worship guide. Um, but we're going to look at the head, the heart, and the hands of this passage. You probably have heard that before if you've spent time in church. The head, the heart, and the hands. It's very, very simple, and the head will have four subparts directly from the verse. So it's it should be easy for you to follow along and kind of see where I'm going with that. Um, but why don't we read our passage uh, together, and then we'll pray. So it'll be on the screen. It's in your Bibles if you have it. It's in your worship guide as well. But we are in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12 and going through the end of uh, to verse 19. So the word of the Lord says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. 
because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray. So King Jesus, um, thank you for the gift of life today, of breath, um, of sunshine and beautiful weather, uh, family and friends, and all the good gifts that you give to us. Um, but right now in this moment, we thank you for your word, um, and we just ask that the Holy Spirit helps us as we sit under the teaching of your word to um, have it pierce our hearts and our minds and to impact our lives in the way that you would have it do. Um, and I just ask that you'll help me to speak clearly and that it is your words um, that accomplish their purpose today and that you're just active in this moment. Uh, so we thank you. We understand that we are um, humble and finite, and we desperately need your help. So be with us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So again, we're looking at mind, heart, and hands. Our first section we're going to look at is simply our mind. So Peter's goal here, just as we've seen throughout this letter and really all throughout scripture, what he's doing is he's shifting our thinking, shifting our perspective or our mindset on things. Specifically, he's going to shift our perspective on suffering yet again today um, as we look at this. And I just love the fact that God does that in the scriptures. You see it all the time. You see it when Jesus is speaking to people, especially Sermon on the Mount. He's like, you've heard it said this, but here's what I say. And he's constantly shifting our thinking and reorienting it in a way in which he has called us to do. And it's just a loving thing that the Father does for us. Um, and very specifically today, in looking at suffering, it's loving that he would help us to see suffering as, as he sees it. Because we tend to look at things in a very humanistic way. So if we look at our verse, uh, our, our verses today, there's four very specific things that Peter's talking about in our mind, in our thinking. So these are very simple, directly from the scripture. Um, so you can copy it down if you want to, or you can look in your passage. But he's telling us four things. Number one, when it comes to suffering, do not be surprised. Number two, rejoice. That sounds odd. Number three, you are blessed when you're insulted. Again, that sounds odd to us. And number four, do not be ashamed. So when it comes to trials, when it comes to suffering, these are the four things that mentally we are to have in our minds um, as we think about this. And so again, what it's doing is it's taking things that would seem a little odd to us, and it's kind of flipping that upside down and changing our perspective. So very simply, as we jump in, the first correction that Peter gives us in our thinking is to not be surprised. And that's a really, really simple statement for us to get. Like, okay, don't be surprised. Anytime a trial comes our way, we're supposed to not be surprised. But if you really think about it, is that the way that we react when a trial comes? Not so much, right? A trial, suffering, whatever comes, and we ask the, the universal question, why is this happening to me? Why is God allowing this thing in my life right now? Hasn't he seen all the things that I've been doing right? That's the universal question we ask when any kind of trial, any kind of suffering 
comes into our life. And Peter, he's been focusing all throughout 1 Peter a lot on suffering, because he's writing to this church, to this new young church, and they are experiencing a lot of suffering as they're seeking to figure out well, what does it mean to be a Christian and how do we love each other and how do we love in this very, very, live in this very secular society that we find ourselves in in which people are maligning us, right? They are causing us harm, causing us suffering for following Christ. And Peter himself, he, played, he, he faced, just like all the other apostles, lots of suffering and trials in his own life, right? In fact, if you were to look at how he eventually dies, Peter was also crucified, and legend has it that he chose to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel that he was worthy of being crucified and dying the same way his Savior did. So Peter himself faced lots of trials, lots of suffering also. He was no stranger to these things. So again, he writes to us these trials, these sufferings. He says, do not be surprised. Now, the word surprise, it's pretty simple, but it's defined as an unexpected or an astonishing event. And so if you begin to break that down, understand that, when it comes to a trial, our tendency is to be surprised. Why is this happening? Peter's saying, no, 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 flip that upside down. Don't be surprised. In fact, he's telling us, expect it to come. And if you have the expectation that is coming, then that completely change your outlook on those trials when they come your way. So this first shift he has for us with trials, with suffering, is to expect it. He's telling us that trials will come. Other places in scriptures we see various trials. It's a common thing, common theme that we see. And so what do we, what do we mean by trials? What does that look like? Well, one commentary, one guy, he, he broke it down into a few basic categories. Obviously, you could say lots more than this. Um, but he gave four basic categories, and that's, you don't have to like jot that down unless you're just one of those people that has to take notes on every single thing. Um, so he gives us basically four seasons of life in which trials come. So there's seasons in life in which believers may lack power, position, protection, or a sense of permanence. So I would kind of just categorize that as vulnerability. There's seasons of life in which you feel vulnerable for different reasons. There's seasons in life in which you may face verbal or physical persecution for your faith. So that's a trial, that's a suffering that may come your way. There's seasons of life in which you have pain because you're seeing another loved one um, who is sick or, or facing something or death. And then there's seasons of life, as you'll see later on in chapter 5, in which we face the prowling attacks of the enemy, of Satan, as well. So those are just four simple ways of categorizing and understanding what does it mean by trials? What does that look like? Those are ways in which you can understand trials, seasons of suffering that come your way. So as we begin to wrap around our, our mind around these things, what we need to understand, what Peter is starting off with, is he's telling us that these things are a guarantee in this life, on this side of heaven. And so if we can understand, okay, this will come, sometimes in one season, sometimes another, sometimes short seasons, sometimes long seasons, if we can have that, then we won't be surprised when they come our way. And I believe that we'll react in a much different way as Christians than if we were surprised. And our faith won't need to falter in those moments. We won't have to always ask the question, why? And we'll get to that why more later on. But I think the beauty of something like this is it, it flies in the face of other quote-unquote gospels being preached in our world today, in particular prosperity gospels. 
You've probably heard that term before, but if not, prosperity gospel, among other things, teaches essentially that if you are a Christ follower, you're going to be healthy, and you'll in some way, shape, or form be wealthy, right? Health and wealth and prosperity that comes from being a Christ follower. And the truth is that there are many Christians in the world and in America that fall prey to this thinking. Even if we're not following the prosperity gospel, a lot of us in the back of our minds think, well, if I'm following Jesus, nothing really bad is going to happen to me, right? I'm not going to face a really hard sickness or diagnosis. My, my close family members won't pass away. I won't ever be without finances that I need, right? Because God's not going to allow that to happen to me if I'm following him. And then the sad thing is when those seasons of suffering and trials do come, man, their faith is wrecked, whether for a season or maybe they walk away altogether because they think, how could God allow this to happen? Maybe he doesn't exist. So in terms of our thinking on trials and suffering, first of all, Peter says, don't be surprised. They're not strange occurrences. They are expectations for us. And that mindset has implications for our life. But let me continue on, because we got to get through the mind to get to the heart and everything else. So our second correction, I gave you four directly from the passage itself. Our second one, he says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So this is our rejoicing section. Again, very counterintuitive, right? So God is telling us to rejoice in our suffering. Does anybody feel like that's a really hard pill to swallow? Yeah, thank you, Jeremiah. Anybody who's like, yeah, you're like, something comes your way, and in that moment, you're like, you know what? I'm going to rejoice in this really hard moment. There was one time um, early on in marriage, we, Rachel and I had, had been married a little like a year and a half. Our first kid was four months old. She decided she was going to be a stay-at-home mom, so she quit her job, and then a few weeks later, I lost my job. And in that moment, I didn't feel like rejoicing, right? Rejoicing in trials and suffering is really hard. So what, are, what, what would a rejoicing look like, right? There are seasons in which it's easy to rejoice. So you may think of a wedding, right? Wedding week, Cole. So hope you're excited. Uh, you may rejoice in a wedding. You might rejoice in like a, a job offering or promotion or when you close on a house finally in this last, oops, sorry, season for everybody or whatever else. There's seasons in which suffer, I mean, rejoicing seems really, really easy and obvious. Those things are good, but suffering, rejoicing and suffering, now that's completely different. But scripture teaches us when we, when we come to faith in Christ, and I want to try to help us understand this, much like what we discussed last week, when we looked at baptism, scripture teaches us that we are unified with Christ. We see this in lots of different passages. You can jot these down if you want to. I'm going to read them out loud. But 1 Corinthians 6.17 tells us, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So you come to faith, you are one spirit with the Lord. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Colossians 3.3, 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And there's lots of other places that we can reference. But this idea of, of becoming a Christian is that you are unified with Christ. 
And so that's, those are beautiful truths in and of themselves just to know and to understand. But I think in terms of our passage, part of what they teach us in being unified with Christ is a few specific things, right? When we come to faith, we are unified in his death in which he takes our sin, right, and our shame, gives us his righteousness. And we are, in terms of, of being unified, we also share in his sufferings, and we share in his resurrection, his resurrecting life, right? So when you come to faith in Christ, you're sharing in those things. You are unified in those things. So when it comes to rejoicing in trials, we don't rejoice in the trial itself, right? That would be kind of a, a wrong way of thinking. But what we rejoice in is, is two basic things. One, what God is doing in us in the midst of the trial, and I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes. But two, we rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ. So just as he faced sufferings and death, but then is resurrected in, in, in heaven, then we likewise, that is where our hope and our faith is. So in the midst of the trial, we can face those because just as we share in his sufferings and death as a Christian, we have hope, we have faith, we have the reality that we will also share in eternity with him. That's the promise we have in the gospel and the scriptures. And I think that's this rejoicing, like how do you rejoice when you lose your job? How do you rejoice in a hard diagnosis? You rejoice, one, because you know God is doing something in that. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. And two, you rejoice because your hope is elsewhere. So you can face those things knowing that this is for a season. We rejoice in the hope that we have in eternity. We rejoice in the fact that he is coming again. And in that moment when he comes back, that'll be a great moment of rejoicing for us as Christians. That's our second correction. We've got two more in terms of our mindset. Our third correction that he offers us, picking back up in the passage. He says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So if you were insulted, you are blessed. Again, taking our mindset and flipping it upside down. Because when you're insulted, you don't feel really blessed in those moments. But he's saying when you're insulted for the name of Christ, in the name of Jesus, for being a Christ follower, you're blessed. So let's talk about that. So I think Peter is very likely referencing back to the Sermon on the Mount. He was present there, and Jesus said something very similar in, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. So in this sermon, Jesus, again, he's flipping things upside down for his followers, and Jesus says, "'Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness.'" For righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, on Christ's account. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How as amazing is that? Peter writing this letter to these new believers, he's referencing back what Jesus had taught him the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus saying, if you are persecuted for my name, if you are insulted for my name, you are blessed because your reward is great in heaven. So again, as sojourners, as exiles, our hope is not in the here and now. 
It is in what is to come. It is in what Jesus has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And we can see those insults for being a Christ follower and say, you know what? I'm actually blessed. I'm going to rejoice. Despite these insults, I'm going to rejoice. So we're blessed when we suffer for righteousness' sake. Why? Because our hope is not in the here and now. It is in the one who has saved us. It is in our living hope from our living Savior who is guaranteeing us this eternal inheritance. So Peter is saying, when these fiery trials come, don't be surprised, but rejoice because you are blessed. So again, just flipping everything upside down. And so I'm trying to talk slowly. I tend to go fast. So as you're processing and thinking through seasons of life that you've experienced some of these things, you could think, okay, what does this mean? How do I do this, right? And we'll get into the action part of it later on. But I'm hoping that's kind of what's going on in your mind. So our last correction in terms of our mind. He says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, in the name of Christ Jesus. Shame. What a word. Don't be ashamed. If you're to define shame, it can be defined as a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by by consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Wrong or foolish behavior. In our life, we we experience shame for for lots of different reasons, right? And I don't think I have to go there because you can think, think on your own of instances of shame. But he's saying when we experience, you know, this persecution or these trials, these sufferings as a Christian, we should not be ashamed. One of my favorite passages that this comes up elsewhere, and one of my favorite passages of, of Paul writing to, to Timothy, comes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 14. And Paul is, I think, saying the same thing. If you will let me, I'm going to read it to you real quick. So 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 14 should be in the right book. Paul says, Therefore, to Timothy, do not be ashamed, same word, of the testimony about our Lord, of the gospel, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So Paul is saying the same thing. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, if you looked at the life of Paul, he suffered lots. He faced all kinds of trials, right? Beatings, you know, stoning to the point of death, and so much more that he faced as a follower of Jesus. And isn't it interesting, in the midst of all these hard trials, when he's writing to his child in the faith to Timothy, he's saying, don't be ashamed. 
Don't be ashamed of Jesus and the gospel. In the midst of these trials, in the midst of this suffering, he's saying, I'm not ashamed because I entrust myself to the one who gave me the gospel, the one who saved me, the one who is coming again. Paul saying, I am not ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Peter saying, don't be ashamed of your faith in Jesus. Stand firm in that faith because he will carry us through to the end. So what I love about this passage is just flipping things upside down, completely changing our mindset, and our mindset specifically on suffering. He's telling us trials will come, expect them. And when they come, have a different perspective on what they're there for. There's just so much here. And I love that God, through Peter, is strengthening our faith in the midst of these trials that will come. We have more to cover, so let's keep going. So let me pick back up. It says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, Christ followers, the household of God, what will become of the, the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And I've totally missed all those. We're going to get to the heart now. So these last few verses of chapter 4 are really important for us. Because it's almost as if you can read verses 12 through 16 of this flipping of your mindset, and you might still have the question, why? Why must there be trials? Why must we suffer for our faith? Why does God allow this to happen to us? Why would a good God allow bad things to happen to believers, to those who follow him? See, these are really deep and really personal questions that are very common for us to have. And I'm not going to pretend like I can answer those perfectly now in this moment. But I do think that Peter gives a bit of an answer to that. Because in verse 17, he starts with the word for. So for tells us this is the answer, right? Shift your mindset on trials, but here's what they are for. Here's why they are there. And it's really important for us to look at. So when we look at the rest of this passage and, and talking about judgment, because certain connotations come to mind when we think of judgment, it doesn't mean condemning as we would normally understand judgment, right, of condemnation. Instead, in terms of judgment, it's a little bit more broad, where it can be either good or bad. It's like evaluating kind of a judgment, where there's either approval or it could result in condemnation. And so what this means for us, this is important, so you got to listen. When trials and suffering come in the life of a believer, they are not God's judgment on you. God is not punishing you. Your punishment for your sin was paid on the cross by Jesus. There is no more punishment to be had for those who follow Jesus. No more payment is needed. Instead, this judgment that is here is meant as a purifying action. And it's telling us in this passage that that judgment, that purifying, begins with God's holy temple, his household. That's what Peter means by the word household of God. It's the same thing he used back in chapter 2, verse 5. 
in which it's talking about how believers are being built into a spiritual house, the household of God. Because Scripture teaches that God's people are his temple. We can also see this in places like 1 Corinthians 3.16. I didn't put that up there for you. Which says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? So if we are to understand that as his people we are his temple, then we can begin to understand this purifying action a little bit more easily. So what I want to do for just a moment is reference two Old Testament passages. I'm going to reference them quickly, not read them, but you still got to hang with me for a minute. And I think this is important because Peter is a Jew, probably has these things in mind as he's explaining and writing these things, so we need to have that background knowledge to really get what's going on here. So I want you to pay attention. So I think, as one uh, commentary suggested, that Peter is referencing two particular passages in the Old Testament. One is um, Ezekiel 9, and one is Malachi 3. So you can jot those down if you want to go back and and fact check me later. Um, Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3, but I want to focus on the Malachi portion for just a minute. So in the book of Malachi, the very first two chapters of Malachi, the Lord is speaking out against corruption of the priesthood in Israel. And I don't know for sure, but this possibly, Jerry could have connections to chapter 5 in talking about elders, but I don't know. That's for you to figure out next week. But he's talking about corruption of priesthood. And so in chapter 3, God is giving his answer to this corruption of the religious leaders of his people. So let me read that for you just real quick. God says, Behold, I send my messenger, who we believe is John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Again, Old Testament temple mindset for us, people of God. And it's the people of God. So, and the messenger of the covenant, Jesus, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi Levi, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. So I think what that passage is talking about ultimately is Christ's second return, his second coming. It says, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? I referenced this last week and talking about those who malign believers and that one day they will stand before the judge, the creator, the ruler of all, and they will have nothing to say for themselves. No defense. And, and in this passage in Malachi, in terms of just our understanding of what does it mean that God's judging, he's purifying his people. It says that God is a refiner and purifier of silver. He's talking about his, this corrupted priesthood in Israel. He's saying, I will refine them. I will purify them. So I think if you understand that in the Old Testament, that begins to make a little more sense than what Peter is saying in this chapter 4 for us. He says in four, verse, chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you 
You see, a part of God's loving process for believers is to purify us with fiery trials. You've probably heard that kind of image before of purifying and refining. But if not, when it comes to like purifying and refining silver, gold, and, and precious metals, there's fire, there's heat that's applied, right, to the point of it melting, and then you scrape away, which sounds very painful for us, these impurities, and what's left is a more pure version of that precious metal. And I think this is what God does through sanctification, right? When we were going through uh, Ephesians, I remember trying to explain this process of sanctification. It's like when you move in. So a lot of people in the last couple of years have bought a, bought a new house. And when you go in, even though it's your home, it doesn't feel like your home at first. What do you do? You knock down walls, you move this here, you rip out carpet, you put in new flooring, and you paint. Now, obviously, a house doesn't have feelings, but if it did, that sounds painful for the house, right? It's kind of what sanctifying and fiery trials is for the life of a believer. See, you have been purchased by the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit dwells within you, so you are saved, you are justified, but throughout your life, he continues to sanctify you to make you look more and more like Christ. So he's knocking down walls, ripping out things that don't belong, and creating in you what you're supposed to be. I think that's kind of what's in mind here with fiery trials. So if we understand that, that changes our perspective on those fiery trials in our life. Charles Spurgeon, if you've ever heard of him, um, once he said of the same sort of thing. He said, if any of you, my hearers, are seeking the Lord at this time, I want you to understand what it means. You are seeking a fire which will test you and consume much which has been dear to you. We are not to expect Christ to come and save us in our sins. He will come and save us from our sins. Therefore, if you are enabled by faith to take Christ as Savior, remember that you take him as the perjurer and the purifier, for it is from sin that he saves us. So he's saying, if you are coming to Christ, I want you to know what that means. Sometimes it's going to hurt a little bit. That's what fiery trials are all about. Fiery trials are God's great love for us. And that he is continually saving us, continually sanctifying us throughout our life. He has saved us, is saving us, and will save us. And so these sometimes quite painful fiery trials have a purpose. And a fiery trial in the life of a believer is God's love for us. So, so far, Peter, God through Peter, has been changing our mindset, but I want to lastly touch on heart and then actions. So here, when we get to the heart, is where the passage gets really, really hard. Because it's one thing to mentally understand something, right? Like, okay, yeah, yeah, trials, sufferings, they have a purpose, I get that. I should expect them to come, okay, I can work on that, I can do that. But the Christian life ultimately boils down to trust. So the question is, do you trust God? Do you trust him? Depending on your life so far, that might be an easy thing to say, or it might not be an easy thing to answer, right? But verse 19, the end of chapter 4, which is an incredibly important verse because it summarizes the entire letter of 1 Peter. 
says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to his faithful creator while doing good. So verse 19 is so important because what it tells us is that our suffering is not accidental. It has a purpose. And he's telling us to entrust. The verb here, entrust, means to give to someone for safekeeping or to turn over to someone to care for. And this same word in the Greek is used in two other places. We see it as commit in the English language. But Luke 23, 46, Jesus on the cross says, Father, into your hands I commit, I entrust my spirit. And in Acts 14, 23, we see it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed, they entrusted them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So when Peter says, entrust God, he's saying, commit Trust God with the very being of who you are, even in the midst of suffering. So when it gets to our heart, the question is, in trials, in suffering, do you trust God? Again, I can think of lots of trials and seasons in my own life, sometimes where it's really easy to trust, but a lot of times where it's really, really hard. Sometimes... I would have the thought, like, how could you do this to me, Lord? Don't you see all that I've been doing? Catch that, doing? How could you do this to me? You see, when push comes to shove, and when fiery trials, when sufferings come your way, ultimately what is at stake is whether or not you trust God in that moment. And that's where this passage gets to our hearts. Personally, I take a lot of comfort in, and I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. But in believing in the absolute sovereignty of God, there's still the question of how could good things, or how could bad things happen to good people? How can a good God allow hard trials, bad things happen to his followers? And again, that's a really hard thing to answer. And sometimes when you're in the midst of that season, it's not always helpful to answer that question either. Sometimes it's better to to mourn with those who mourn. But I believe Peter is giving us an answer in verse 19. He says, entrust your soul to a faithful creator. You see, when when we ask the question, how could God, and fill in the blank, that's a very human centric question which makes sense to us, right? We're all humans. It's very simple and obvious to ask that kind of a question. But when you're asking that question, you're putting God on trial, which is a very unbiblical perspective to have. So Peter, he gives a title for God and an adjective to describe God. He says the words, faithful creator. Faithful creator. So what he's telling us in that moment by saying creator, he's saying, you see, the reality is that you and I, we are just the creation. You see there's lots of other places in scripture, like Jeremiah 18, but I'm going to reference Romans 9, 20 through 21, which says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? 
to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You also see the same exchange in the book of Job, where at the end of Job, essentially God gives Job a good dressing down, right? He's like, you stand up like a man. Let me talk to you for a minute. You see, when it comes to our lives, and both the really good and the really bad in our life, what we need to remember is that we are just the creation. And God is the creator. As creator, even though we may not like it, he has the supreme right to do as he pleases in our life. But the good news for us is that he's not some tyrannical leader, right? No, Peter says he's a faithful creator. He is faithful, and his plan is good. I've heard it said before, and you may have heard it said before as well, that if you knew everything that God knew, you wouldn't change anything that he's doing or has done. But it's a really hard thing for us to grasp. But we have to remember, we are the creation, he is the creator, and not only that, but he is the faithful creator. So what this passage is doing for us, it's telling us in our hearts, you can trust God. Our sufferings for our faith, the fiery trials that we face, all of those are a part of his plan and his will for our lives. So what that tells us is those trials and that suffering has an end date. They won't go on forever. They're for seasons. They may be short seasons. They may be long seasons. They may be your entire life seasons. But they don't last for eternity for Christ's followers. Our suffering, our trials have a purpose. It's not pointless. It's not random. It is purposeful. And Scripture teaches us that God's purposes are always good. So, church... Our creator is faithful. You can trust him. You can endure whatever comes. Therefore, entrust your souls, the very being of who you are, to God, even when you suffer. And so lastly, and this is my conclusion, so there's not another long section to go. Lastly, when it comes to like, well, what do we do with this information? We've tried to shift our mindset by God's grace and in our hearts, we're seeking to understand, yes, I can trust you, Lord. But what do we do with that information? He ends again in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So the reality is our marching orders do not change even when we suffer. We are to continue doing good as Christ followers. As a sojourner and in exile in this world, you continue moving forward. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have the feelings of, this is really, really hard, right? You can feel that. You can cry out to the Lord. That's okay. But what he's saying is you still continue to obey. You continue to take steps as a Christ follower. So we face whatever comes with the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. But we also remember that we are his ambassadors in this world. We are his witnesses in this world to the things that he has done and the things that he is doing for us and will do for us. We remind ourselves that we are his temple. We are being purified to look more and more like his son. And we hope in the fact that he is coming again. 
Therefore, we do not lose heart. Or as 2 Thessalonians 3.13 says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And I would add to that verse, he is coming again. Therefore, trust him. So this passage, it's a wonderful passage. Changes our mindset, speaks to our hearts, and tells us continued moving forward. He is coming again. And that gives us a lot, a lot of hope. So real quick, this isn't in my notes, but last week, as we ended, I gave you three questions that if was helpful for you that you could kind of ask as you read any and every passage. So I'm just going to quickly do it out loud with you. First question is, what does this passage tell us about God and his character? Secondly, how does it speak to our fallen nature, our sin? And thirdly, how does it point us to our need for a Savior or the Holy Spirit's work on our life? And so if you think through this particular passage and ask those questions, and you could come up with more answers. But if you look at this, what does it tell us about God? He is faithful, and he is sovereign, and he is good. You could say loving as well, and so much more. So that's what 1 Peter 4 tells us about God. When it comes to our fallenness, it's going to tell us it's really hard to suffer well. Right? When you suffer, there's going to be times in which you don't trust God, in which you fall short. And the reality of this passage is you cannot suffer well and trust God by yourself. But the good news is, and it points to our need for a Savior and the Holy Spirit within our lives, that he enables us, right? He lives within us, he dwells within us, he is sanctifying us, and he is enabling us to trust God throughout our sojourning. So as we close, Jesus is returning, he is good, and we can trust him. Let me pray for us. Again, Lord, we, we are thankful for your word. Even when we have hard passages like this, even when we know there are certain seasons that come in which we really don't want to trust you, we still thank you for your word, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit living within us, that you are purifying and sanctifying us throughout our lives and that you are good and that you will remind us of the truth of your word, that you will remind us that you are good and that you help us to trust you. So we desperately plead with you and ask you, continue to help us to trust you. In the seasons that are really good and the seasons that are really hard, help us to trust you. Help us to have the long mind and game and to place our hope in our Savior and the eternal promises that we have in Christ Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you guys have had to listen to me for three weeks, and I've given you lots and lots of words. Um, so one thing we'd like to do at Redstone, if this happens to be your first time, is we do a dangerous thing of passing around the microphone um, just a few times because we, we, you know, people are hungry. Um, but if in the things that you heard that you're like, hey, I'd love to say this, or I'd love to share, like, this was a season of life in which I faced X, Y, Z, but God was good, or maybe another verse, or maybe you have a really easy softball question for me. If you have any of those things, and you want to talk for just a moment, raise your hand, and Jerry will bring you a microphone before we continue in worship. baby had something to say.
Um, something that just is very encouraging to me, and you touched on, but just to, it just reminds me, and I need reminders. Um, but when it says in Malachi 3.3, 3, um, that he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify um, the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and it goes on and on. But I think the thing that's encouraging to me is sometimes in trials, it just feels like we're really alone. And the words that he will sit, it's not like he does the refining fire and walks away, starts, turns up the heat and abandons us. Um, and so that he's near and he's near to the brokenhearted. And I also just really appreciated what you said about this isn't punishment, like that punishment, but it is, I like the picture of rearranging the house and yeah. knowing that God is creating us to become vessels where he is worthy to dwell. And that's really cool. Yeah, so, thank yeah you. that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it's really hard to live this out in the midst of those. But if you remember, I'm not alone. He is there. He's sitting throughout the whole process. And he's doing a beautiful thing. It gives you a lot of hope, a lot of faith. Thank you. And another one? Kathy. Um, something that I always think of falsely whenever I'm thinking of trials is I... I almost always fail to remember that I'm not alone. Um, and more than just God with me, there's also believers around us. Um, I'm going to remind us of a verse that we'll be going through very soon in the very next chapter. Um, 1 Peter 5 verse 9 says, Resist him, that is the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's not unique to us. Suffering is not something that we're the only ones going through. No, that nobody knows how to relate to us, how to understand us. Um, whatever kind of pain it is of all those four types that you listed or beyond that. Um, we're not alone in that. Um, Christ suffered, of course, we know that, but there's also believers around us suffering as well, and we're not alone in our struggle, whether it's someone who's been through what you're going through, who can just understand and, and empathize, um, you know, there's, there's even spiritual gifts that the, the Spirit has equipped the church to be able to deal with suffering, that's why we have encouragement and exhortation and mercy and so many of those other things, God has equipped us to deal with suffering and to help believers around us with yeah, that. Definitely. And what's required for that to happen is that you're open and vulnerable enough to let other believers know what you're going through, right? And then Paul tells us to comfort those with the comfort with which we have been comforted. But that has to happen when we're, we're open and transparent. The next person, that's what I was thinking of, the second Corinthians 1 passage. Yeah. How can you help someone unless you go through those kinds of things? Mm -hmm. But sometimes the Lord in his love allows you to. And it's not even about you. It's so you can help somebody else. Absolutely. I like what you said about um, people being ashamed. Mm -hmm. You can't be ashamed of your faith because I see it a lot. I used to be ashamed mm -hmm. until I got opened. And, like, we, we all see it. Everybody in the church sees mm -hmm. people, like, being ashamed of their faith. And I like 
what you said about that because I don't I think none of us shouldn't be ashamed Absolutely. of what we believe in and stuff like that so yeah I like what you said that's great great reminder so um <clears throat> when we were in the process of adopting all the kids prior to ever even knowing who they were uh, I remember one day being really really angry because if you don't know the story we didn't want to do this and I was so angry. And Peter was leaving for work one morning. I looked at him and I said, why is God turning our life upside down? I don't understand this. Why would he do this? And he looked at me. I don't even think, I don't know why you said it, God. And he looked at me and he goes, what if God's turning our life right side up? <laughs> and I said, oh, okay. And I can't tell you how many times over the years I've thought about that and thought, because that, what we were dealing with then is nothing compared to what we've dealt with in the last five and a half years. And there have been so many times, even recently, that I've thought, God, you turned my life right side up. And in the midst of trial and struggle and heartache and tears and anger, God is still turning my life right side up because he's refining me to look more like him and less like the person who thought my world would be turned upside down. Yeah, absolutely. And his goodness and love is what he does. That's good. Thank you for sharing that. Anyone else? Before we continue in worship, Cody. Um, James 1 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Um, and it's a joyous thing when we really think about it because if we know the truth, we think of Ephesians where it says we are children deserving of God's wrath. And so what we deserve is to suffer for our sin and to suffer because of what we have done wrong in our rebellion and rejection. Um, but rather God shows us grace that we in turn as his children get to suffer for our glory and ultimately God's glory and for our joy. Um, and so what <laughs> it's a very gracious thing that we get to suffer and that we get to know Christ um, whenever we don't deserve that. Absolutely. Very counterintuitive, but it's true. Anyone else? Okay. I'm really thankful for the pattern seen in the Psalms when we go through suffering, um, specifically with lament. Um, in Psalm 13, it just says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? And he really just pours out his suffering to God. But then at the end, it says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And the Psalms have really helped me in those in-between times of suffering where I um, am struggling to rejoice because I can pour out to him. And then I always remember, but your word says you have dealt bountifully with me and given me salvation. So I'm going to cry out to you, but this is what I know to be true. Um, so I'm really thankful for God's kindness in giving us the Psalms. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks, Katie. If there's one more. 
Um, going off of what it says in uh, verse 13, it says, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. And so I've heard a lot of um, a few people talk about just feeling alone in the, in the trials. Um, and I've been reading a lot about temptation and trials lately um, through a study I'm doing in James. But um, one of my cross-references took me to Hebrews chapter 4. And it, um, there at the end it says, um, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, as we are yet without sin. <clears throat> Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace uh, to help in time of need. Such a great reminder. Thank you. Uh, One more. So I've been through two very challenging ministries. And as I still process these things, even today, this weekend, it's in the process of and attending a ministry called Regeneration, we've talked about that several times now, is I can be frustrated on a human side of things and be very frustrated. And that's the human side of me and be very hurt by the people. But at the same time, God's grace is with me and what he has done in me and through me um, that's really what he's looking at and that's exciting because it's what he's doing in here am I still frustrated on the human side yes is regeneration helping me with that yes but it's that process of what is God doing spiritually in me and who am I trusting? Am I trusting him or am I trusting myself? And trials are very hard. And we still process those. And we all go through them. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> That's a part of it. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's continue in worship. So if you grab your worship guides, stand and join us. <laughs> 